David Staines is professor of English at the University of Ottawa, editor and or author of more than 15 books. And also general editor of the New Canadian Library and of particular work we're going to talk about, Northrop Frye on Canada, part of the collected works of Northrop Frye. You edited this as well as a number of the others? That's the main one, I, and I've written a couple of essays on Frye, and he was like a mentor to me from his Harvard year on. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Okay. First of all, in your introduction to Northrop Frye on Canada, you allude to the fact that he both denies evaluation and then just immediately after proceeds to engage in it. And so I'd like to read the, that's probably his most famous passage, would you say, or certainly one of them where he refers to the Alouette, and then go from there. Okay. Now, this is Fry writing, and this is the conclusion to the first edition of the Literary History of Canada. The book is a tribute to the maturity of Canadian literary scholarship and criticism. Whatever one thinks of the literature, its authors have completely outgrown the view that evaluation is the end of criticism instead of its incidental byproduct. Had evaluation been their guiding principle, this book would if written at all, have been only a huge debunking project, leaving Canadian literature a poor, naked alouette plucked of every feather of decency and dignity. True, the book gives evidence on practically every one of its 800-odd pages that what is really remarkable is not how little, but how much good writing has been produced in Canada. But this would not affect the rigorous evaluator. The evaluative view is based on the conception of criticism as concerned mainly to define and canonize the genuine classics of literature, and Canada has produced no author who is a classic in the sense of possessing a vision greater in kind than that of his best readers. Canadians themselves might argue about one or two, but in the perspective of the world at large the statement is true. There is no Canadian writer of whom we can say what we can say of the world's major writers, that their readers can grow up inside their work without ever being aware of a circumference. Thus the metaphor of the critic as judge holds for the Canadian critic who is never dealing with the kind of writer who judges him. So in that one paragraph, he really contradicted himself. He's basically said of all Canadian literature, it doesn't get to the standard that the, the great classics get to. That's true. I think Fry was an evaluative critic because all criticism, whatever you choose it to be critical of or, or to use in your criticism, by choosing that you're isolating it and giving it some dimension. And if you look at his 10 reviews for the, the University of Toronto Quarterly for those 10 years, he will talk about books at great length that are very good or very good in his scheme and then he'll talk about others that are very poor and he'll say they are poor. He really wants to evaluate while his general thesis is something that applies to all literature. When he came down to Harvard for me and, and gave a lecture and talked with the students, I remember that he came back to my apartment on campus and we had the class of 25 there for lunch and, and we just talked and talked and they asked him certain questions and he got on the subject of Sinclair Ross and it was fascinating because he talked about a theme that was in As For Me and My House and then he said he did this in these short stories, in this book, in this book, in this book but he did it in As For Me and My House in this particular way 
And I realized at that moment that Fry knew all of Sinclair Ross. He had photographic recall of all his works. He isolated his major work to define Ross, mm -hmm. which was fine because he knew the rest. Yeah. And that was his, I think, unique characteristic. He knew everything that he had read and then took out of that a thesis about a particular book. Which is where evaluative criticism is most valid. Once you've read the, the, the whole... That's right. Then you can say what's good and what's not good. And but if you haven't... He had read the whole package. Many of the disciples or people who, are, who want to be like unto Fry have read As For Me in My House and they will dis deduce that all of Ross is like this. Well, it isn't unless you've read the whole thing. The talk I was giving in Germany this week was about the expatriate writers from Canada at the turn of the 20th century. And I had to read 40 novels by one person in order to say that he didn't talk about Canada there, or he did. And it was exhausting. Mm -hmm. But a couple of people came up to me at the end and said, wow, you really know your material. And I guess it was self-evident, though I didn't state it, because I had so much of a, a substance to yeah. what I was theorizing about. Well, you're not qualified to say this is better than that unless you've read everything. That's what you have to do, and that's yeah. what Fry did par excellence. His University of Toronto quarterly reviews were the whole year in Canadian poetry, and it was the whole year, the good and the bad. And for some of the uh, books he talks about, and they're reprinted in, in the volume on Northrop Fry on Canada, mm -hmm. they weren't reprinted in the Bush Garden because the negative attitudes to certain people have to be spelled out in order to contrast them with the positive attitudes. And so I think in those reviews, you, you can see that he was an evaluative critic. And in the passage you read from the Literary History of Canada, it is evaluation. Is but what's so interesting is at the beginning of it, he talks about the fact that the authors have outgrown the view that evaluation is the end of criticism. So he's, in one hand, saying, you know, sort of an immature, flawed approach, and yeah. yet in the same paragraph, he's sort of broadly dismissing the entire. That's right. But I think Fry's attitude is one that for his theories, the theories and, and the archetypal patterns apply to all of literature. And that's not evaluation, that's theorizing. Yeah, he's putting a system that's in right. place. That's right, and putting a system in place is the effect of, of all his writings. Uh, on the other hand, the evaluation comes in whenever he talks about a book. Well, I was going to say, throughout this, it's about nine, no, it's about 700 pages. The book uh, we're talking about is the Northrop Fry on Canada published by the University of Toronto Press. Throughout the selection of essays, they're all scattered with best and greatest. What do you think he would say about that? He'd smile, and he wouldn't say a word, um, because it's true. In the later years, he, he wrote about his theories applying to Canada. He didn't write about individual books. I asked him to, to write an afterword to Ethel Wilson's first book, Hedy Dorval. And I wanted him to write on something because I wanted him in the series of people who wrote the afterwards. 
But also, I, I want him to say something about Ethel Wilson, because he had never talked about her, and he had never talked that much uh, about Canadian fiction, except in passing. And he agreed to do it, and he wrote a splendid afterward. And it was really significant. But that returned him to a text, and a text that he loved. Do you think a critic writes better on a book they love or a book they hate? I'm one of those people who believes that you, you don't write on a book you hate. Because if you hate a book, then you've said all you need to say about it. If you, you love a book and you want to go through it, you, you can have negative criticisms. But to hate a book is to, to waste your time. But if other people say that it's great, how is that a waste of time? Isn't that a, a useful... If all the people say it's great and you hate the book totally, then say something negative, but don't go on at length about a book's badness. That doesn't accomplish anything for the audience or whatever. But if you can come up with a solid argument that deflates... Fine, that's your that's... business. And isn't that what evaluative criticism is all about? Is the, is the engagement between love and hate? Yeah, but but I believe criticism should first of all in book reviewing and and I edit the journal Canadian Poetry and I, I say to people you have to say what the author intends to do, what he does, and then stand back and show how he fails if he mm -hmm. does fail. Mm -hmm. But you you have to begin by saying what the book is about what it's doing and what you what you think that the author's intention yes is. and then pull back and, and say what you want mm -hmm. but you don't go in by saying I hate this book so much it's true of Broadway criticism the critics of the New York Times who have such power with the new shows if you read a review by let's say Walter Kerr who was sort of the great critic it's always positive and then at the end he pulls back and says why it doesn't work. You read criticism now and it begins by saying I hate this play. The problem is people don't read on after that. You mm -hmm. don't get them into the review. You don't get them into the process of reviewing. You have to invite the reader in with you and then hold back but you've got to invite the reader in. If you want exactly. them to read what you have to say. Exactly. That's one of the problems. And Fry never says, you know, I hate this. In, in the Bush Garden and in the reviews that are in here and their completeness, he'll stand back and say these are bad books. But he does this at the end of the review, highlighting what the important books are in that year. And then he says the negative things about these minor books. And so when the Bush Garden came out, they eliminated all the minor books of each of the reviews and that that seemed fair to to that book but it isn't fair to Fry's whole evolution as a critic. One of the criticisms of Canadian criticism is that there is a lack of evaluative aesthetically based criticism versus boosterism uh, a national pride in what Chum we produce. as I call it. Right. Would you say that there's been a lack of evaluative criticism in this country? Yeah, and, and there's been a lack of evaluative criticism and a fear of it. A fear that it might not stand up to, to our highest standards. But our highest standards are fine now. I hate to say this here, but the fiction being written in Canada per person, for our size, is the best fiction 
being written now in the English-speaking world. And I don't say that often, but I say that when I'm outside the country, and I have no criticism of this at all. If I say it here, people say, well, you only say that because you're Canadian. No, I don't say it because I'm Canadian. I say it because I believe it, and the books are there now. And I remember years ago, I was in, in Sweden, I was giving a series of lectures. One of the evenings I spent with Perry Udine, who ran a great publishing company, and I asked him what he thought of contemporary fiction. And he said, well, he translates a lot of it into Swedish, but he doesn't go anymore to New York or to London to see what's going on. Because he said, the British and the American writers tend to write the same things. He said the most interesting fiction in the English-speaking world comes from Australia, South Africa and Canada. And he said Australia got recognition because Patrick White won the Nobel Prize. He said South Africa had apartheid and that made us pay attention to South Africa. And the, another the, no, two Nobel Prizes. Exactly. And he said, but Canada has gone on its own way quietly and calmly, not demanding to be read. And it's developed so fully. And he said, that's the country to watch. When did you say that? About 15 years ago. Our fiction has has just blossomed totally in the last 30 years. What are the great Canadian novels then that have been written in the last 15? I think anything Alice Munro writes is incomparable. And I think her last volume, Too Much Happiness, is perhaps her best. Mm. Very bleak portraits, but very powerful, very unnerving. I think Rohinton Mystery, and his three novels and his one collection of short stories are very, very strong. I think A Fine Balance is a book I've taught it, I've reread it three or four times, and it's incomparable. I think there are other writers, and Gatwood is very fine and writes powerful novels, is a first-rate and remarkable poet. And you can go on from there to Michael Ondaatje and so many others. Robertson Davies was very, very powerful, but he was very, very popular in the States and in England. I think because he gave a portrait of us that was not what we were, but what the English writer wanted us to be. And so I think he catered to that and, and very powerful too. But there he was are, more English than the English, wasn't he? Yes. So I think it's an astonishing picture we have now of Canada. And I think 100 or 200 years now, if the world survives, they'll look back on our time and wonder what happened? Why was this Renaissance there then? Because it's astonishing right now. I'm speaking to David Staines, who's the author of, of many works of literary criticism and also the general editor of the New Canadian Library. You mentioned Alice Munro off the top. What What's interesting about evaluative criticism is that another critic, John Metcalf, who hasn't really been embraced by the establishment, perhaps in the way that you have. No, I, I'm not embraced. <laughs> hugged then? No. No. no shares your passion, your regard for Alice Munro, and yet can't understand your love of Morley Callahan. So here we have a, an example of two critics who love one author and completely disagree on the other. What does that tell us then as, as readers of your criticism, both of yours? Well, John Metcalf attacked me rather violently. Which is what he's wont to do. Yes, 
and he's done it to many, many Canadian writers, over a small article I wrote, an obituary for Morty mm. Callahan that I was asked to write. And I don't think Pache John Metcalf that an obituary is a place to go into all the negativity that is possible. You know, I think Morty Callahan did fine, fine job in terms of Canadian literature. I don't think an obituary is where you raise all the issues that John Metcalf raises. Mm. I think an obituary is where you sing the praises of someone. You mentioned that you thought he was a better writer than Hemingway. I do. Uh. I get bored by Hemingway. He's, he's a great writer, but I'm bored by him. Mm. And I'm bored by the male shenanigans of his characters. And I thought when Hemingway shot himself, committed suicide, it was such a blatant anti, I don't know if it was anti-whatever, but Hemingway, life was over. He was yeah. too old. and He couldn't produce anything better than he'd already... No, it's already... not produce. He couldn't, he couldn't, what can you say? His energy was sapped and the energy is sexual and everything else. Mm. And I think that's a silly way to be. When I talk about Monroe and the achievement of, let's say, too much happiness, too much happiness is staggering. And her first collection came out in 1967. And now her most recent is her best. And mm. it's 42 years later. And I think that's an achievement. And I don't know what she's writing now, but it's probably better than anything <laughs> in Too Much Happiness. And I, I think that's indicative of remarkable talent, remarkable ability. The sustained enriching of the material. And, and she grows from strength to strength. Mm. There's certain patterns and certain stories, and then the next volume comes along, and you see her developing those into new works. I'm in awe. And yet, well, perhaps we could look at why you think Callahan is so great then. I think his short stories are totally remarkable. I've taught the short stories again and again, and I can't teach them. I, I think there's no way to teach them except they're vignettes that are so powerful, so direct, and yet all I have to do is read them. Because I can't sort of say he's doing four things in there and the first thing's done three ways. You just have to read it. The father, the son, the mother, they're right there. They have a little dialogue and then it ends. And the whole world is depicted in this moment that's transfused with his human understanding and compassion. And I think Callahan was very, very important in the 30s because while American writers were embracing socialism, communism, Marxism, and, and the new left, and this was the way that American literature was headed. Callahan didn't. Callahan had the same targets, whether it was the church or the penal system or whatever. He'd sound off against these, but he wouldn't embrace something else instead. Mm -hmm. He would just sound off and look at that and come back and show us the compassionate view of what was happening. And so his novels of the 30s, such as My Beloved, More Joy in Heaven, others, I think were tremendous achievements for this period. And yet none of them are essentially Canadian. Nope. He doesn't mention the settings of any of his books until 1948 in his book, The Varsity Story. Which may have been a result of his publishers telling him not to uh, localize. Or, or was it his own? I mean, yeah. everyone knows it's Toronto and, and that's the setting. 
and yet it could be Cleveland or Detroit or Chicago. It's a city on the Great Lakes. And I don't think they wanted a Canadian city to have such predominance. And Callahan also said to me, not realizing that the person who said this was me, uh, <laughs> he said that he, he liked to admire Chekhov, who would say, in the town of X lived mm. three people. And so that was what he was trying to do in his fiction. Mm -hmm. And then... Universalize it. Then. And, and, and Callahan had more short stories published in The New Yorker. He was, he was the first person to ever have a story published in The New Yorker. They didn't use fiction until he came along. Mm -hmm. And... Um, kind of interesting that Dallas, that's how Alice Monroe really made her name. Exactly. Yeah. And, and where Callahan would say in The Town of X, with Monroe now, they want to say in, in the town of West Hanratty in southwestern Ontario, and it's so specifically Canadian. Mm -hmm. and, hit, and I think that's the difference in the 40 or 50 years that separate them. What criteria then do you use to uh, evaluate a great work? Perhaps I can back up and put it in the context of the new Canadian library, which is McClellan and Stewart's effort to make sure that important works of Canadian fiction are accessible to this current generation. There's about 120 works. Perhaps you could tell us what criteria you use to determine who gets in and who doesn't. Well, the first thing is I don't determine the criteria. The board does, and the board consists of Guy Vanderhagen, who's a, a Western writer, Bill New, who knows more about Canadian literature than anyone in the country, he's a critic. And Alice Monroe, who we've been talking about, and me. That's four people. When, when a book comes along, we all have to read it, which we do. And then if one person says it shouldn't be in the library, then it can't be. We all have to be unanimous on every book. And so that gives you some evaluative criticism right there. Doesn't that person have to tell you why yes. it shouldn't be in? Yes, we have and long meetings. <laughs> okay. Um, and oftentimes when we get to negativity, one person will be strongly negative, one person will be strongly positive, and one person will be in the middle. And then we discuss and discuss and discuss. We want it to be the new Canadian library. That is, as they've all said, the books we should have should be giving a view of the history and development of Canadian literature. I think it was Alice Monroe who said, I wouldn't want to reread Roughing in the Bush every other week, but I want it there because it was important to the beginning of our concept of what literature is. So in other words, it was chosen as much for the impact that it had on other writers, let's say, than for its Absolutely. intrinsic merits. Or, or certain books there are chosen because of their intrinsic merits. Mm -hmm. Sheila Watson's fiction is there because of its intrinsic merit. And we put those books in because we believe that. Um, but it's not a canon, as, as people want to say. Mm. It's just the books we could get. Yeah. The rights the to. The rights to, okay. Malcolm yeah. Ross, when he began the series in 1957, had gotten the rights to these books. And many of the books he chose at that point were very, very good and weren't known in Canadian literature circles. And there were no other series. Now, if I go after a book, the other publisher doesn't want to give it up because 
he or she thinks there's something in this book that must be important, so I have to reprint it. They have to, yeah, not you. And yeah. and, and I say to them, no, you know, you don't have to reprint it because it's not going to make money. We just want it there. In some ways, I have many of the books that I wanted. In other ways, I don't because there's all these other publishers nowadays. Well, yeah, I mean, you, there's the glaring omission with, not a glaring omission, it's not an omission, but I mean, it, that's what, before I knew that, I was wondering why Solomon Gursky wasn't. He's not there because Solomon Gursky is owned by Penguin and Penguin won't give us the rights. Right. So right. there's nine Mordecai Richler titles here. But Which it says enough in itself. And we can't get Solomon Gursky or Barney's version. Those okay. are the last two. Okay. You haven't really told me what what criteria, though. I don't know if you want to get into that. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it should be a story well told. And beyond that, you can make your own mind up. I mean, it shouldn't be something of 250 pages that after 50 pages you're throwing the book across the room. You should want to read it. It should be a story well told. And then beyond that is what we discuss. And the discussions are long and laborious and they're behind closed doors and no one from McClellan Stewart is there. So often the books we're leaving out are books by McClellan Stewart. And some of the books we want in are, are books that we can't get. That's the perennial problem. Just getting back to Metcalf for for a minute, he talks about the fact that if you are calling Callahan great, then what word do you use for Monroe and uh, some of the other? She's writers? great too. This is a personal differentiation, or is it? Let Let's put it this way: there are books in the New Canadian Library that I think are important. I don't think they're great. And we've taken about 20 books out of the series. I mean, there were 220 books when I took on the job. And so we went through each one of them and we kept about 60. Over the years, we found more and more and more that we wanted, that we get the rights to, etc. And now it's up to about 120. We decided to go through a couple of years ago and take out the ones that hadn't sold at all. People think this is a gold mine. It isn't a gold mine at all. And so we looked at all the books and I talked to each one of the members of the board privately and separately. And we took about 20 books out that should have been taken out. Because after 20 years, they hadn't sold more than 10 copies. Do you have any titles? Well, you can find them for yourself, but there, there are books that we really wanted that were really important and they sell on average minus one copy a year. <laughs> so it's it's a, a heroic venture by McClellan and Stewart yeah. to keep all these books in print. And I knew when I took it over and did a lot of searching through, there, there were certain titles that were still in their first printing, and this was 30 years after. And I thought, oh, this store has a first printing, I want to keep that for myself. And then I realized the first printing was what was in the warehouse 30 years later. That does tell us something about how Canadians, what, respond to their own literature. And, and again, uh, speaking from the perspective of a collector, you look at the works of Morley Callahan and you put the price of a first edition of Callahan up against the price of a, of a Hemingway. Now, granted, they've got the 
ten times the population, but That's still, right. it's a great deal more than ten times the price that you pay. How do you respond to that? I just accept it. I mean, part is is the level of consciousness in this country for the old guard, for people who are 70 or 80 and older. They can't believe that Canadian literature is important. They really can't. Oh, it's a sort of inferiority complex. And they, they want to believe that you're studying it or you talk about it because you want to bolster our sense of self. No, we talk about it because it's very good literature. And so the old guard you can't change and there are vestiges of this in some younger people too. And you just accept that and go along. And so when, when Atwood or Davies or Carol Shields or any of these people get into the American market or the British market, it's fantastic to see what the reaction is here. Because the reaction through the 80s and 90s was very much long newspaper articles on Atwood's really made it. Well, why has she made it outside of Canada? Mm. Why is that so important to our sense of ourselves? that we have to make it there and then tell everyone here we've made it. And I remember an editor I was working with in Toronto for a book I was doing called me because she was so excited because Alice Munro's most recent book had made the top seven books of the year in the New York Times. And she said, now she must be happy. And I said, why? And she said, well, the New York Times. And I said, but what difference does that make to her? She's here, and it has to be her own world. And she's very happy if she gets good notices in the Toronto and the Montreal and Ottawa and Vancouver and Calgary papers. The rest is icing on the cake. The cake is here. And, and this woman who was from New Haven, Connecticut, couldn't understand what I was saying because her sense was the larger world and that doesn't apply to, to the good writers. And, and this is a perennial problem. Timothy Finley, we used to talk, and he was always concerned with Britain and the United States. Mm. And, and I said, why? Why not just accept what you are? And doesn't that just get to the, the heart of Canadian identity? And well, Canadian identity is a boring phrase. It, it's something academics made up and write long articles about Canadian identity. I had my identity when I was born. That, that's it. And I'm here and, and that's it. And Metcalf, to use as an example, is someone who's British, who came here, then went back and then came here mm. again. And, and he wants to make this world into his own image of what this world should be. This world is. That's all and it is what it is. And this is a perennial problem. Hugh McLennan used to say that the Canadians are best because they combine the best of the British and the best of the American, and that's a Canadian. And though that's uplifting and ennobling and all that, he's still using colonial terminology to define what it is to be Canadian. Half British, half American, that's us. But that's a really poor definition. Well, one of the things that I think would really be helpful is exactly this evaluative approach whereby someone would confidently come forward and write substantively about what they think the best ten novels, like Somerset Maugham did. So my question obviously is, what do you think the best ten Canadian novels are? I don't know. I, I tend to think the first Canadian novel 
and a very good one is Sarah Jeanette Duncan's The Imperialist. It came out in 1904, and that really started something happening. Then along came Lucy Maud Montgomery, which we tend to dismiss, but you can't because she's so pervasive and so influential. And Anna Green Gables was 1908. And then Stephen Leacock and Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, his one Canadian book uh, in 1912. But that book was his least successful of all his books. Commercially? Yes. It, it didn't sell like the others did, and yet it's gone on to sell so much, and the others have fallen by the wayside. And then there's Marty Callahan in the 30s, Hugh McLennan in the 40s, uh, As for Me in My House in 1941, Richler and Sheila Watson in 1959, and then you have this explosion of very good people in the 60s, and then you have the rise of the immigrant writers or naturalized Canadians as opposed to natural Canadians. So I, I don't know, but that's some of the books I'd, I'd love to talk about. Perhaps you could end up with Northrop Fry again. Did he have novels that he was particularly high on, Canadian novels? Early Canadian novels or, or Canadian novels in the 40s and 50s, which he had read. Mm. In his later years, he didn't read that much because he was working on his Bible books and other books and so his reading was focused on that and so he didn't know that much uh, Canadian fiction in the 70s and 80s and that that was very sad he'd read certain books I gave him or I was high on so he didn't really have a canon although you do classify him as an evaluative critic yeah can I classify him uh, I, I've written this in an article as perhaps the first major Canadian writer Canadian author. He, he talks in, in literary history that there's no one whose writing evolves to that degree that people are taken out of themselves into his or her own world. And, and I think that maybe where Fry resides.